Welcome to the Scoop and School podcast. Do they worry you at all? Are you worried? Ridiculous, happening everybody welcome to the final stretch of the college football season i uh got a good show here this week do a little bit of uh discussion around the college football playoff semifinals uh, a little little discussion about notre dame's performance in the fiesta bowl and and what are the takeaways there of course a preview of uh this this upcoming monday's national championship game and then a really good conversation with a special guest that I hope you'll uh, certainly stick around for later in the show. But let's just jump into the semis, and it's it's the same story in a different year. Uh, I, I went through this uh, last year, going through the history of the college football playoff dating back to 2014 season, and the number of games that have been blowouts as defined by you know final scores uh, of of you know. Uh, margins of victory of of more than two scores, and after uh, after Alabama, you know, dominated Cincinnati and Georgia dominated Michigan, we are now at 16 out of 23 playoff games to date have been blowouts. Uh, so that's a 70% clip. That does not count the Orange Bowl from the 2018 season, where Alabama went up 28 nothing on on Oklahoma. And it was never a one-score game after seven nothing, uh, but Oklahoma did come back to I think lose that game by eleven or twelve when all was said and done. So that's that's one of the the minority of quote unquote close games to give you an idea of what we're dealing with. Um, and there have been thirteen different programs to play in a playoff game. Eleven of those thirteen have been blown out. So listen, Cincinnati and Michigan. You're, you're now in very good company. I'll, I'll read the list again, but Florida State, Oregon, Oklahoma, Michigan State, Washington, Ohio State, Clemson, Notre Dame, Alabama, and now Cincinnati and Michigan. Welcome to the club. All of those teams have been blown out in a playoff game. The only two participants never to have been blown out, LSU and Georgia. And of course, we've seen what Alabama's done to teams in the national championship game before, so Georgia's time on that list might not be particularly long, although we'll get into that a little bit more later. In terms of what we saw from the two games, I think it was pretty much exactly what we expected. Um, Cincinnati actually did, I thought, a decent job on defense, uh, making it tough for Alabama, but again, how much of that is just Alabama not having all the weapons this year that we're used to them having? They have a, a pretty... Average for their standards, offensive line, haven't really been able to run the ball that well all year and really were able to run the ball well uh, in this game against Cincinnati. And and with John Mechie going down in the SEC championship game, they're limited uh, from a wide receiver weapons perspective. So it's just not the most potent Alabama offense. But either way, I thought Cincinnati did a pretty nice job defensively, but they just had absolutely no chance on offense, you know, their first drive, they move the ball nicely. Um, you know, a timeout gets called, kills their momentum a little bit. Uh, Saban's able to regroup and, and Alabama is able to force a field goal. And that was by far the best offensive drive for Cincinnati all game. So just not a lot there. And then in the second game, 
we saw the Georgia that that we had seen in pretty much every game other than the SEC championship uh, game. They they just physically Michigan was no match. I mean, Aiden Hutchinson expected to be one of the top picks in the draft. Uh, you know, one of the one of the Heisman finalists might have come in second when all was said and done. I mean, he was you know treated like like a rag doll at times. And and this this Georgia defensive line on the other side. I mean, they've got you know they were running sideline to sideline with with huge size. Just really absolutely no chance for any success running the ball for Michigan. But really, the different differentiator beyond what we expected. Because we we thought both both defenses would do pretty well but Stetson Bennett was was dialed in he he made some really nice throws down the sideline just an explosive uh more explosive looking offense from Georgia than than we're used to seeing obviously Bowers is someone that you know we we expected to have a pretty good game but getting all the receivers involved and and Georgia being able to run the ball as easily as they were able to uh that one was a little bit unexpected but as we've said in the past some it's it's not atypical for when these these big time SEC teams go up against non SEC teams. This is often even if on paper it looks like this might be a close matchup. Usually when they get on the field, the difference is in in the athletes. And and this is no surprise. George has been recruiting in the top one or two over the last three, four, five years. That's what's showing up on the field. You know, Michigan's been recruiting in the top eight to twenty. That you know th- those are very different spheres to be to be playing in and that showed up on the field and that's where the difference really was uh then you know the next day Notre Dame uh in the in the Fiesta Bowl jumped out to a 28-7 lead in the first half and you know the second half couldn't have been more the opposite uh Oklahoma State was was fully dominating to the point where it they they could have won by more than they actually did um you know, pretty, pretty easily. Ultimately it was a bummer of a game. I don't think it means a whole lot. I definitely don't think it means a whole lot about Marcus Freeman and, and what he is as a coach. Um, you know, we, we knew the secondary was, was a weak spot and it took Oklahoma state the better part of two quarters to figure that out. But once they did, they exploited it. Uh, Spencer Sanders is a really high variance quarterback and he happened to play very well. So, that, that's certainly uh, an important factor there. Linebackers for Notre Dame missed a lot of tackles. The, the linebacking group will be better next year. Not so sure that the secondary will be better next year. Um, and then the Rose Bowl coming on right after the Fiesta Bowl and seeing what Ohio State's going to have on offense next year uh, with, with, those, with those four absolute studs coming back at wide receiver in addition to a great running back and a Heisman finalist quarterback. That was definitely a little depressing one-two punch of Notre Dame blowing a game where their secondary looks awful. And then Ohio State, you know, with the most potent passing attack we've seen uh, in the Rose Bowl, you know, scary look ahead to, uh, to how the season is going to open in Columbus for the Fighting Irish next year. But uh, I'll probably talk a little bit more about Notre Dame next week. Uh, I will do uh, one final show, like a postseason sign-off after the national championship game next week. Should have some more answers about Notre Dame, uh, perhaps both in terms of the coaching staff and maybe some updates to the roster as well. So I'll hold off on, on some of my Notre Dame thoughts headed into the offseason for next week. But uh, now let's let's move on to the national championship game. Uh, this is so coming into uh, coming into this game with my picks, I am I'm 29 and 26 on the year. 
this is going to be the second year in a row where whether or not the season was profitable comes down to the national championship game. Uh, if let's say you're betting uh, 110 to, to win 100 on every one of my picks this season, if I win the national championship game, I'm going to be plus $140 for the season. And if I lose, I'm going to be minus $70 for the season. So uh, pretty, pretty tight either way. But after last year, uh, I, I picked the national championship game wrong, and and it was my first losing season in quite some time, definitely focused on getting back on the right page, and that's why we're focused on making the right pick here. You know, Alabama is getting three points in this game, and it would just be so easy to take those points after what we saw a few weeks ago in the SEC Championship game and what we've seen from Nick Saban time and time and time again. But thinking back to that SEC Championship game, Alabama had everything to play for. And as much as Georgia wants to say that they wanted to win the SEC Championship, and they probably did and should have wanted to keep Alabama out of the playoff as their you know primary threat to a national championship, you just can't manufacture the do-or-die that Alabama attitude had uh, that in, in the SEC championship. Georgia didn't have that because it wasn't true. They knew they could lose and still be in the playoff. And I think that that is a pretty big factor. Add on top of that, Alabama missing John Mechie is a big deal. Um, that, that Alabama offense against Cincinnati wasn't great. Um, and, and really, they're just in a situation where, where Georgia... You know, they, they can probably slow down Brian Robinson and, and the Alabama run game more so than Cincinnati did. And and they're going to be able to put some more pressure on Bryce Young, limit the passing game that without John Mechie, it's really just Jamison Williams and Slade Bolden right now. Um, so so I expect this game to be played probably in the 20s. I, I totally messed up in the preseason by picking Clemson over Georgia in the national championship game. But I am ultimately sticking with the preseason sentiment that this is Georgia's season more so than Alabama's. So I think, listen, if you want, if you want my guidance, I think buying it down to two and a half might make some sense in case this does come down to either overtime or a last second field goal. But with that being said, let's go with Georgia minus three for the national title. That's the final pick. Go dogs. First national championship since I believe 1980, if I'm not mistaken. Once again, a reminder that there will, in fact, be an episode next week. Whether or not that's the final episode ever, I'm not quite prepared to comment on. But, uh, but yeah, something to uh, something to monitor. And with that, let's go to my really good conversation with uh, with our guest this week. All right, as promised, I am now joined by a coach at a program that barely won any games last year, turned it around this year to win double-digit games, a conference championship, a nice bowl game. So welcome, head coach of the Baylor Bears, Dave Aranda. Uh, Sorry, folks, I have the linebackers coach at Utah State, Mike Zuckerman, thank you very much for joining the Scoop and Score podcast. What's going on? How's it going, man? Inside linebackers, coach. I don't get all of them. Ooh, okay. Thank you for <laughs> thank you for for clarifying. You you have always had a real blind spot for the outside linebackers. <laughs> I'm glad that they only have you on the inside linebackers. You uh, 
you you moved to uh, Utah State from Miami uh, mm-hmm. and, and were part of a, a brand new coaching staff there for the Aggies this season. Can you tell us a little bit about what it's like to to move in as, as part of a new coaching staff? What goes into that messaging and really just kind of what the, the first month or so of your time uh, in Logan uh, was like? I got you. So it's interesting because it's actually kind of, even though I was at University of Miami for a long time, I was a part of three transitions, new coaches there. So it's kind of similar, even though not moving, kind of similar, all that deal. But so it's it's always interesting because, you know, you come in and then all of a sudden there's new coaches. And especially in this situation, because there was some, uh, I don't want to get into all of it, but there was some controversy with the way Utah State season finished the year before and the way the search process was going to be handled. And that, that was a big deal with the players. So there was a lot of like first coming in, okay, how are these guys going to treat us? Like, because there's there's two ways a first season goes. Either the kids are just awesome and bought in and they're like, this is, you know, they, were, they weren't happy before and now they are happy and they buy in and everything goes like really well. Or everyone is just does not vibe with the new coaching staff and especially the seniors. And they're really the ones who tell you whether it's going to go well or not. And then, and they just fight you along the way. And then the first year is just basically just a battle to instill your culture and you're trying to win out over kids who won't, you know, accept it. Um, And that was one of the coolest things about Utah state is we couldn't have felt more welcome from the second we walked in. And then that probably speaks to the character of our players and why we had a good team, because the more I've been around, you know, college football and been around some really talented teams, the character of your team is such a determinant factor in how good of a team you actually are, despite your talent. And right away, you know, they didn't hold anything with the, like the hiring process or anything like that. They didn't hold any of that against us. They bought in right away and, you know, no disrespect to anybody on the previous staff or anything, but they were so enthusiastic about everything we were doing and they just kind of bought right in and it made it, it it was fun. It was like the best way I could describe it. It It's like they, they were, eager to learn, eager to please us and do what we wanted to do. And then obviously you never, the spring and the summer is always obviously, you know, the, the, everything's awesome. Like there's never, no one ever after the spring and the summer is going to come out. Like, you know, you hear the reports every year, like, oh, we're getting better, blah, blah, blah. We really got a chance. And you really don't know until you get to training camp and kids find out who are the starters and who aren't. And the bullets start flying for real in games and like, how's this team going to react and hold together? And that was, that was the coolest thing. These guys didn't flinch and didn't change. And, you know, we had our ups and downs during the season and <laughs> they, they did not flinch. They were, they were a blast to be around. So when you say the group bought in and, and that's the most important thing right off the bat, what is that message that coach Anderson and the rest of the staff was, was preaching that they bought into? Um, so he's got, a set of core values that are just basically, you know, he, 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 but his, his biggest thing is one and just get one degree better every day. And, you know, you'll go around college football and everybody's got a catchphrase or something like that. But I, I really like that one because it's pretty simple. It's just like, get better, get better every day in some form, some way, some fashion. And, you know, he didn't bog everyone down with a million rules or a million, everything. He was just, you know, treat people with respect, get one degree better every single day. And, you know, that's kind of how we held, held kids accountable. It's like, did you get better today? And if they had a bad day, did you get better today? No, well, then you didn't do what we've asked you to do. So, and I think everyone really just kind of bought into that, that the best thing we could do was just get a little better every single day, win, lose, whatever. 
And and coming off of a one-win season, I think that messaging makes a lot of sense because you're not asking to go out there and win a conference championship the next year. But that's exactly what you did this year. At what point? At what point did you realize that you guys might be pretty good? <laughs> well, it's funny as a coach, you never have any idea how good you actually are. You really don't. I mean, I was. <laughs> I mean, I. I'll be very honest with you, and I'm overly – there's a lot of different people in this profession. I'm overly optimistic in this profession. I can maybe count on one hand times in any game I've ever gone into that I thought I was going to lose, and that's not an arrogance thing. That's just like by the end of the week, I'm fully convinced in what we're doing, and I believe in who I work for and everything like that. But, I mean, so we went into our bye week three and two, and we just lost to Boise and BYU. And, you know, that that was – we start off three and zero, and then we lose two in a row going into a bye week. That's a lot of time to think about two straight losses and some things didn't go as well. And so I, I just think we did a really good job of just looking at what we were doing and how we could improve on what we were doing for through the first five weeks. And you know, the, like I said, the kids didn't flinch, and we just came out and I guess it was kind of you know we strung some wins. We started to string some wins together all in conference after that, and then you know. It was like it started to become like, oh, wow, you know, as the season develops, some other teams lose. All of a sudden you control your own destiny. And then like any season you get some luck, you know, we lost to Wyoming pretty badly. And that was, you know, the kids could have been like, oh, well, this is it. And they just came back and played hard. And luckily the chips bounced the way they needed to for us to um, go to the conference championship. And then, you know, they played a hell of a game there. So and we definitely got some lucky bounces along the way, but it's all the credit to them that – but in, I guess I kind of didn't really answer your question. I don't know, to be honest with you. I just, <laughs> no, I, I just, because I enjoyed the, the, I just always felt from the beginning that this team played so hard and played together that we were going to have a chance in every single game. Yeah, I, I think that's as good an answer as any that, you know, you, you don't necessarily always know at any certain point. You just keep winning games. You, you mentioned, you know, you got lucky in certain places, and, and that's one way of saying it. I mean, I, I think a lot of people, um, you know, caught the ending of maybe that Colorado State game. And, and that just does show sort of the razor thin margins between, you know, winning and losing and then getting to the conference championship game or not. I think uh, it became almost a running joke on this podcast that Utah State was a second half team. Uh, I, I've certainly in, in the first half of the year, I think your second halves were a lot stronger than your first halves a lot of time. And, and I often, you know, said, Hey, that coaching staff, they, they get them in to a locker room and they're, they're really turning things around in the second half. What actually is going on? Cause so many people, and, and this actually perfect, given that my Notre Dame fighting Irish just blew a huge lead um, in the second half. And, you know, a ton of people that know nothing say, Oh, well, they didn't make adjustments. What actually do does making adjustments mean? when when you're going into halftime and, and trying to turn things around that's, a, that's think, a really great question you know because you get a lot of questions in this that are like oh what do you guys actually do but that's like but you know like that question is so not specific that's a very specific good question i think the biggest thing when you go to halftime in terms of adjustments the first thing you have to do when you go to halftime is just assess what your plan was is it working or is it not and why is it not if it's not because if it's working and what you planned and things are going according to plan and you're like, cause I'm just going to speak from a defensive perspective. Okay. They did what we expected them to do. What we planned on doing is stopping them. This is good. Okay. What are they going to go to next? 
and that becomes what your halftime is. You need to figure out maybe we're not exactly going to change anything, but is there anything that did bother us that we need to fix? Is there anything that we anticipate they could do next, which we need to coach up in advance? And how can we keep our edge on to keep playing well? You know, what message do they need to hear to keep that edge? So that's if you're playing well. If you're not, you know, okay, why are we not? Is it a structural issue or is it a player issue? Because if it's a structural issue, okay, now we got to go, what can we do different? What do we have to change? What do we do this? Because they're taking advantage of something we coached, okay? Sometimes, like, if you're down 21 nothing, but you're down 21 nothing because three kids missed tackles, nothing in the plan was wrong. And sometimes you just need to go in there and be like, guys, what are they doing to us? What are they doing that's really affecting or hurting us in terms of our scheme? And, like, we just got to tackle or we just got to be – like, or, you know, just – we made a mistake and, you know, not always on the players. Sometimes we overcomplicated as coaches and that's why they screwed it up or whatever, but it, it's, it's much more of an assessment of what is the actual issue here. And then it, it plays out from there. Does that make sense? No, that, that, that's great. And I like the idea that, you know, let's say things are going wrong. It could be due to the fact that they're doing something you didn't expect, or it could be, you know, whatever, whatever you plan to do, just, isn't working, but I, I suppose the solution is more or less the same. It's, it's what can we do to stop whatever, whatever. Correct. They are. Correct. And if you start, like, if you go into the locker room and you know, you're down and maybe not playing well, but it's really not a structural issue in the defense or what you're calling or anything, or just it can be adjusted just by calling some different stuff or a structural issue. The worst thing you could do is scrap the whole game plan and try to draw something up from scratch at halftime. Like, Oh, some master like adjustment, something like cause that's, then the kids are going to, you know, you try to do something brand new in the middle of the game. That's never going to go well. Yeah. Like you, you always need to stay within what your kids know and what you try and just trust that you prepared them the right way. And you know what? Sometimes you're going to get your ass kicked. <laughs> I mean, it's just sometimes they they coach better than you and they played better than you. And then that happens. Got it. So you, we mentioned your time at Miami, uh, you were a grad assistant there. Then you, you had a couple uh, analyst or quality control roles there. So this is your, your first role is as a, you know, on-field position coach. Really curious as to, you know, how you've experienced game weeks and, and what your day-to-day is, even, you know, as, as specific or detailed as you want to get. But take us from game ends on a Saturday. You've got a game the following Saturday. What does your week look like? No, I'll, I'll keep it kind of generic cookie cutter because everyone's a little different in mm-hmm. terms of – but in general, so – and then what, what that's what a lot of people don't understand. Like I, if you ever have a visitor come to the game and see you or anything, they're like, Oh, can you hang out after the game? So is that an away game or something? No, <laughs> we're getting right back on a plane and going back. We got to work on something. But so at some point, and did you want this from full-time perspective or like a GA perspective? I, I, I want your full-time, you know, what, okay. what this year was like. So, so your Sunday, you start, if you're starting on Sunday, you played the last day, you flew home or whatever, start on Sunday sometime. Sometime between, based on different staffs are different. Some people, excuse me, start in the morning. Some people start in the afternoon. But your first thing is you go in, you grade yesterday's film. What do we do good? What we do bad? Blah blah blah. What do we need to fix? So you grade the film, and then once that film is graded, you're basically you're moving on. And normally, what happens is people will start, and it depends because there's two different types of operations. Some people practice. You have a mandatory one day off for the kids, so you have some people practice Sunday night. And do like a corrections period. Some people practice Monday night. We're um, 
a Monday operation team. So Sunday is all us. So we, after we're done grading, everyone gets separate for a while and just starts to watch the other team on your own and just kind of put together your thoughts, what, you know, the stuff that, you know, what are the things that will affect my position group this week? What do they do? What personnel groupings, all that sort of stuff. So everyone kind of puts together their own thoughts and what they think will be good uh, in, in terms of what relates to them in the game plan. Then we come together and game plan, people game plan a bunch of different ways, but you know, but then you start getting together as a staff, either in small groups, big groups, you know, not everyone, you know, maybe like I'll get with the D-line coach or the safeties and the corners coach. We'll get together and then everyone will get together, kind of just talk about watch what they do in terms of like cut ups by situation and things like that. And then get that together. And then for us, we try to get as much of that as we can done Sunday night, like Sunday's normal Sunday and Monday are your long days, like really long days. So Sunday we do that. Then Monday morning we come right back in, and then you move on. Just your different situations like red zone, third down, all types of stuff like that. It's all slightly different in how you game plan it. Um, and then we would Monday night. Then you do your meetings, which is where you'd go over the film because that would be the first time you'd have seen them since the game. You so you'd go over the film. And you're in individual like individual position groups for these meetings. Yeah, normally you do something as a unit first. Like the coordinator would cover stuff, and then you'd go individual, have some sort of team meeting. If the, uh, Coach Anderson would want to show any place to the entire team, good or bad, you know, the teachable moments or just, you know, something to hype up the team, like this was an awesome effort play, stuff like that. And then it moves on. We start meeting on the next team, and we do like kind of like a half walk, half practice deal Monday night. And then we're in afternoon practice operations. So Tuesday, we come in, just get practice ready. But by that point, we have a pretty much large chunk of the game plan done, you know, and what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. And, you know, Tuesday of practice. And that's honestly when. So practice is more like, you know, obviously you're teaching them what to do, but also so you can look at what you're doing against the plays. And sometimes you notice things that you need to change as you're watching the plays against the scout team or, well, what if we did this? What if we did that? So it evolves throughout the week. Normally Tuesdays like your first and second down practice. Wednesdays more situational, third down red zone, and then you'd kind of do like a walkthrough Thursday. And some people practice Thursday and do walkthroughs Friday. The new age thing is practice is walkthrough Thursday and go full speed on Friday. Huh. Chip Kelly actually started that. There's some sports science behind it where you shouldn't. You should always like move full speed within 24 hours of having to play the game. So you're not, it's not a shock to your nervous system or something. It's the science of the Omni, but I don't know. It was good for us this year. And so then you do a walk. So we did a walkthrough on Thursday, practice Friday. And those days, each day progressively, you're kind of there less just, you know, because there's less to do. The game plan's done, but then you're obviously got more stuff. You got recruiting, you got things like that. So, excuse me. And then, um, you know, Friday, if it's a home game, that's kind of like, you get some time. That's where you can actually like take care of your personal life a little bit because you know, you're home, people are doing stuff. There's nothing that much to do till at nighttime when you get with the team and have team dinner and meetings at night and stuff. And then a away game, that'd be when we travel, but you know, but then there's curfew that night and all that stuff. And then game day, depending on when the game is, if it's early, we get up and go. If it's uh, later, we do some meetings and a walkthrough in the morning and then go. So that's no. basically then repeat. Rinse, repeat for about 12 weeks. No, that, that's interesting. I, I have a few questions just to dig a little deeper. One, you mentioned, you know, you work on first and second down and, and then the separate day you do third down and situational work. For 
for an idiot like myself, what what is the difference? I mean, is first and second down basically just saying here are the base packages that we like to run? And when you're talking about third down and situational stuff, you're you're saying, okay, you know, if if we get this down in distance and we need a play, here's like the four plays we might run. Is that sort of what it is, or what what's really the difference there? Well, traditionally, people on first and second down, that is your base offense mm-hmm. because you can run or pass, you can mix up personnel groupings. That's you know, that's when you get all your base run plays, what are your more basic path plays, your play action plays, your plays off of that stuff. Because college football is actually what it's – there's very little true dropback pass in college football anymore. Like you, you very rarely see people do like a seven-step drop with long developing concepts down the field. So first and second downs, there's a lot more run, RPO, quick game, screens, gadget plays, stuff like that. But that's, that's people's base offense. And traditionally – when you get to third down, you kind of look, you know, where's their cutoff, where they're still running their normal plays. And at some point they're always going to pass the ball mm-hmm. because they have to get to the sticks. So once they're always going to pass the ball. What is that typically? Is that five, six yards? What's what sort of the number? Yeah, normally it depends on the team, but like normally four or five it normally gets about the pass range three or under. I mean, three or under you're thinking more of your quick game, you know, three, four, it, it, but it changes for some teams. It's three. Some teams it's four. Some teams as deep as five. They're cool. still just doing the normal stuff. I mean, you play air force. It doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, but that's the thing. Some teams, it, it really got, cause some teams don't change. Some teams have the same pass concepts on first and second down. They do on third down. Some teams have specific packages and then red zone things just kind of tend to change because uh, there's less, you know, there's less um, vertical space on the field. So a lot of stuff gets eliminated. You're trying – the defense can operate. You can call some different stuff on defense because you don't have to worry about getting beat over the top, So which means the offense has to adjust. And a lot of times people run their quarterbacks more in the red zone just typically just because there's you know there's less, less room and a way to get one more number because defenses a lot of times are adding one more number since they don't have to play with a deep safety or anything. Um, but, yeah, but some teams just run their stuff. I mean, which it's interesting, but that that's typically first and second down is where you get what a team actually is on offense. And then to follow, answer your second part. So like a lot of teams have a third down package on defense, right? Like you, they'll sub people out and bring people in and you don't have to be as run sound. Like you're just putting in plays and blitzes and stunts that are designed to beat the protection. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Or like, you know, like third down, you get some different coverage concepts too. Like, you know, like people play man, they're like, oh, just play two man, play two man. Well, you try and fit the run in two man on first and second down. It's not fun. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and, and I think that's a concept that that a lot of listeners will understand because, you know, it's it's as simple as, you know, people know that you're going to go to your nickel package in, in third and, and passing distance. Or a lot of people know that there's, you know, some outside linebacker that can't guard the run, but, but is, you know, kind of the pass rushing guy. And so that, that certainly makes sense. The other thing I wanted to ask about, there was no mention of recruiting in your day to day. I'm not so much asking about, you know, what goes into like evaluation periods or, or, you know, making offers and things like that, but how much of your time, it, you know, on your phone is spent, you know, texting, DMing. 
I assume some kids are different than others where they're not interested in texting you where others probably are, but how much of your time, you know, what, what goes into that of just, you know, keeping contact on kids that may already be committed or, or, or prospects that you're working on and, and developing those relationships? Well, regardless of whether they're committed or not, none of it even means anything anymore until they sign a piece of paper. So, I mean, you, you better be talking to your kids, all the time like and maybe everyone says like oh you better be talking to them every day and and i for for some you know if you have a good enough relationship with the kid normally either between you texting him or him texting you that kind of happens naturally you know like you said there's a fine line like some kids don't you know you don't want to annoy a kid either but no but you need to be like at least like constantly in touch with that kid during the week period, because like, especially during football season, you want to let them know you're thinking about their game, you know, who they're going to play, blah, blah, blah. Talk to them about what your game plan is, stuff like that. Because you, I mean, and it's not recruiting should become not work because you should enjoy the kids you're talking to and the kids you're recruiting. And if you don't enjoy, if if you're not enjoying talking to someone you're recruiting, it's probably not someone you need to be recruiting. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and that that and it, and it, it way, you know, you normally start out with a much bigger pool of kids at the beginning. And then hopefully by the time you're in season, it's you've got enough commits where you're really focused down on just a certain group. And that makes it, you know, more manageable and the relationships become more and more personal. But, yeah, no, it's something that we do every day. We try to, I you know, we try to watch kids. early in the week. It's harder. But as the week goes on, making sure we're watching new kids every day, next year's class watching the game tape of our commits, you know, make and making sure we're up to date on that. So it's, you know, it's an everyday thing. I mean, I've technically been on vacation since um, the end of the bowl, but you're still talking to next year's class and the kids are just signed in January, in uh, December, especially a couple of them coming in in January, making sure that their housing is all set up and everything like that. So it doesn't stop. Yeah. I, the idea that you're talking about your own game plan or, or what their game plan for, for their, you know, Friday night game is going to be, that makes some sense to me because theoretically these kids are football junkies and, and they want to talk shop. But I, I guess the idea that any of these kids want to be contacted every day by adults, it's just, now you're, you're a relatively young guy. So I, I suppose there's less of a gap there, but I just, it's, it's strange to me that these, you know, I think about myself as a junior or senior in high school and, you know, I couldn't have like gotten off the phone with like adult relatives <laughs> fast enough. It was just like, I, you know, I just don't really, I don't understand why these kids want, I guess maybe a lot of it's just kind of the ego thing now. And, and, you know, that's why they're, they're tweeting every offer they have. And I won't, I won't ask you to, to comment on sort of the recruiting culture of, of high school kids right now, but I, I can't, I got to imagine that's, that's more what it is. Cause I just, I don't get why they want to talk to adults. This is, it's just the name of the game. Yeah. It is what it is. I mean, and it's, it, it is crazy. I do sympathize some kids. I know for sure. Like I had, there was a kid on campus who he was uh he had a, a, a ton of BCS offers you know so he but I had built I, I kind of had built up a relationship with him before he had blown up and so he was just on campus for a game or whatever so we were just talking you know we we're cool and he's like just look at this and he showed me his phone he had like 132 text messages since the time he'd been on campus it's like so that's different I mean I remember when we were in high school you know they just passed the originally like text message was just starting yeah. And Ray nickel, Rice. It was a nickel per text. Yeah, it was um wasn't Ray, it was uh Jeff McDermott's phone. It was like he had to like turn it off because he couldn't use his phone because it was so crazy. And then that's they actually banned it back then. 
because it got so crazy. And then around uh, maybe 2011, 2012, they brought it back. I forget which year it was. But. Yeah, it's all. And it's probably some of it's just like a, you know, a never ending cycle because some of the kids want it. So then all of the coaches are doing it. And then the coaches feel like they have to do it, even if the players would sort of rather it not be going on. So anyway, it's uh, it's definitely uh, an interesting situation. And so coming off a great season, 11 and three Mountain West Conference champions, Jimmy Kimmel, Las Vegas Bowl champions. Uh, what uh, what does the offseason look like? What's sort of the, the message going into to 2022? Uh, well, I mean, to me, the biggest thing is that, all right. You know, last year was just about, you know, nobody thinks, you know, it was a, it's almost easy when you could say, you know, nobody thinks we have a chance because nobody thought we had a chance, you know, and that, that's something that resonates with any human being on the planet. Like you're the underdog, you know, now it's got to be one, can we live up to the standard of last year? And two, you know, are you ready to be the ones that are hunted? Like everyone's going to give us their best shot now. Everybody's coming for us. So you better be ready to bring it every week. But I mean, really, but all of that, because I am, though, a big believer, like, yeah, like, those are underlying messages, but it goes back to, okay, one degree better. You know, <laughs> we did all that. Let's get better. And if you continue to continue to get better every time, we'll be fine. And if you settle and that's all you want to do and we don't want to improve, because the reality is that's last year's team. This is a brand new team. And if we don't continue to improve and become a new team, then with our own identity, then we're not going to have success. So, that's really just where we got to go with it from here. And, you know, I think we've got a great core group of guys coming back that just, you know, we, we bought some incredibly talented players, but I think the guys coming back are very talented and bought in. And now for sure, you know, they know they, the cool thing about when you win is like, Oh, okay. These coaches knew what they were talking about. So, you know, they trust us. We trust them now and spring spring the second year is always fun too, because, you know, the first year you're just, you know, you're teaching from, Every single kid in the program day one is learning the new defense, the new offense, the new special teams. Spring year two, you got a lot of guys who know it now. So, you know, with your ones and twos and returning guys like that, that that you can move a lot faster with them in spring as opposed to the first spring. So that'll be fun. When when you say and and you know that's that's perfect, come full circle. We're we're back to the you know get get one percent better. Um, one degree, sorry, one degree. <laughs> Um, I, I, I do remember you did say degree, um, for a coaching staff, cause for the, for the players themselves figure just using round numbers, about 25% of the roster is actually new. And, mm -hmm. you know, an even larger part of the roster is maybe moving into new roles. So for them, it kind of is like a new team each year for a coaching staff. I imagine it's a little bit harder to view it that way. Cause you're in the same place and you're in the same role. So how, how do you kind of differentiate it for yourself? Well, I just think – I don't think it's that hard because, you know, you have – well, there, there, there's a few things. Is one, you have a new – each team takes its own identity, and you know you're going to have to replace something in your room. Like, there's very few people – if you're lucky enough to bring back your entire room, good for you. But even with those guys, it's like, okay, if you have guys coming back – like, I have a linebacker coming back who – you know, one of my one of my starters is returning. So now what I'm looking at is, OK, how can we take the next step with you to make you an even better player? So that's kind of the things I focus on with him and everyone else. It's all right. Who's going to step up and become that guy? And how can I develop these guys to match the production and even outplay what we did last year? And then um, the other thing is that, you know, you can't I, I, I firmly believe you can't just be like, 
from a schematic and coaching perspective, I, I believe so strongly that you can't just sit back and say, oh, what we did was good. Let's do that again. You know, you have to constantly evolve. You have to look at yourself, figure out how, what can I, co- I, I constantly am thinking, what can I coach better? How can I be better? Like, I don't, I, I refuse to settle and think I did a good job. Regardless of if I did a good job or not, it doesn't matter. I need to be better, period. I need to get better. The defense needs to get better. The scheme needs to get better. There's nothing, there's nothing worse than saying what I do is the best and there's no way to improve. And I think that's when you die as a coach. And I think it's, you know, it's just, and it's human nature to do that. So it's, it's hard, but you really need to push yourself to learn more, figure out what you did wrong. It's a constant battle to improve at what you do. And that's what keeps it fresh. Last question. Mm-hmm. All season, I imagine, you know, a lot of programs, it's sort of, you know, focus, 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 countdown clock to that week one opponent. You know, this is, this is where our focus is. This is, this is what we're building towards. We got that first game. Tell the truth. Are all the posters and signs in the weight room and stuff actually going to be for your week two opponent? For Alabama? <laughs> You're opening, opening at home against UConn. Uh, arguably, again, I don't want to give them any bulletin board material, but arguably the, the worst FBS program in the country right now against uh and then week next second game so that'll actually be week zero and then your week one opponent uh at brian denny stadium uh in tuscaloosa against the alabama i'll be honest with you man like and and everyone says this like we didn't talk about washington state last year until game week okay we actually got into game planning that won't it's really just an overwhelming thing with coach anderson and with us we're not gonna like it is the one that is so far away and two, it's about it's about us. This whole year was about us. I mean, it's it's just it's about how well can we play on every given Saturday. It doesn't matter who's across from us because when you get into that game, when you get into the, I, I really believe when you get into making certain games big and certain games not, what happens is if those games don't go the way you want them to, then it affects you in other games and you you question your motivations in other games. And just to me, it's got to be a sole focus on the heart of the team and what we need to execute that given day. And just what, you know, what are we doing? Because once you get into that game, it, it just, there's a lot of negative repercussions that can come from looking well, at specific with, opponents, looking ahead, all that stuff like that. With that answer, you have solidified yourself as a very real official college football coach. Cause <laughs> that was the coachiest answer I've ever heard. You will have a chance on September 3rd, 2022 to absolutely shock the world whether or not you will just be playing against a really, really good Alabama team or the two-time defending national champion Alabama Crimson Tide, we will find out this coming week. But going to be exciting no matter what. Uh, Mike, thank you very much for for joining. I think uh, you shared a lot of really interesting insights here. I appreciate it, man. Thank you so much for having me. All right, take it easy. That concludes the Scoop and Score podcast. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points and may God have mercy on your soul.